Five is the number of years our guest, Alicia Glenn, was the deputy mayor for housing and economic development under Mayor Bill de Blasio. Leading the development and implementation of the administration's 300,000-unit affordable housing plan, 100,000-job economic development plan, and many other programs and initiatives. She recently left city government, but is here with us today to reflect on her tenure as deputy mayor, the state of the city as she and her colleagues founded in 2014, where it stands now in 2019, and where it is and should be heading. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here. We've got a great special episode lined up. If you've missed any of our recent conversations, we've had some really good ones, including with the city's Transportation Commissioner Polly Trottenberg, with Nicole Gelinas of the Manhattan Institute. Uh, we talked the Amazon deal and what's next for the city. We've had a lot of good conversations so far here this year. So check those out if you've missed them and make sure to subscribe to What's the Data Point on your favorite podcast platform. You can find all the episodes there or at the CBC website or the Gotham Gazette website. Okay, today we are happy to be joined a second time. You were one of our first guests, I think, actually, early on, a while back. Almost two years ago. Wow, two years ago. I kept yeah. the honor. Thank you. <laughs> Alicia Glenn, thank you for joining us. How is life on the outside? How are you doing? <laughs> well, it's only been three weeks, so yes. life is, I wouldn't say I'm completely on the outside yet, but okay. I can get a feeling of where it might be going. <laughs> is it hard, easy? I, I heard an interview with Howard Wolfson recently, and this is years after he left city right. government, and he still had this like sense that when he first left, it was very hard. Well, of course it is. I mean, you devote your entire life, your whole being to the work you're doing when you're in City Hall. So it would be insane to say that you could automatically turn the switch off. At least at six o'clock in the morning, I'm not, you know, trolling the blogs and listening to what people like you are writing about all of us all day. Um, but it is going to be a slow and steady, you know, decline. But, you know, I've lived in New York my whole life. I've been involved in these issues my whole life. I think just because you go to the outside doesn't mean that you, A, stop caring, or B, you want to start being somebody who isn't influencing these things, because mm. this is what really matters. It's what my work has been my whole life. And you'd love being in the mix. I mean, you, you're you someone, I mean, not that you don't mind maybe a little time, downtime, sure, but right. you like... Of course. I mean, I think, again, you can't go from 100 miles an hour to 30 or 40 mm. miles an hour. And yes, I mean, if the mix means making sure that New York City is, you know, continuing to be a better place and that people aren't screwing things up, sure, then I want to be in the mix. Um, so take us back in your recollection, 2014, you come into office What's your recollection of sort of the landscape that you felt like you were coming into as deputy mayor for housing and economic development? What did what, what did you have to work with and what did you sort of see as as your your real mission? Well, I, mean, I think there are a couple of things going on. I mean, on one hand, we inherited a city that was in incredibly good shape. You know, if you sort of look at the basic statistics and metrics of, of how a city does in terms of its GDP, a growing tax base, um, really rebounding from the recession, you know, the Lehman um, recession, and beginning to really see the results of that in many ways, right? I think most people felt very positive about the city. So again, if you look at these big metrics and crime was down, tax collection was up, things were generally good um, by those broad metrics. By the same token, it was clear that both the mayor's election itself was a little bit of a referendum on how some people felt very left out of the recovery, if you will, from both 9-11 and the um, financial crisis of, of 2008. And so we clearly were elected with either as change agents or a mandate, you know, I don't know what you would call it, but, and the mayor was very clear that notwithstanding the, the 
large-scale economic growth that the city had been experiencing for the past, let's say, four or five years before we got there, many, many folks, many communities felt very um, not included in that good part of the story. And he came in on a platform of trying to figure out ways in which we could address those issues. And and so for me, obviously, um, thinking about how we could make a real dent and shift into a more proactive stance, both on inclusive economic development for job growth and a more five-borough economy, and thinking about what that meant in the 21st century. And then, obviously, his signature initiative of trying to do something in housing that was much bigger than had been done even in prior administrations. And again, I always like to say, this is like, it's been a it's been a ramp for many, many years since Koch. So it's not that we were the first people to ever think about making affordable housing a priority. But I do think the mayor made it clear and put his money where his mouth was that it was going to be the priority other than UPK, at mm-hmm. least for the first term. And that did, in fact, turn out to be true. So affordable housing, UPK, thinking about broader inclusive economic development, and figuring out how to take all this extraordinary wealth that had been generated in the city and begin to think about what to do to take care of the communities and the folks who would not feel um, that they had been part of that. And let's be honest, for me, I came in after three um, men who had come you know, from Wall Street, as had I, but had come from sort of a different, I think, perspective, all terrific people in their own way. But I certainly felt a pressure being, you know, a woman in this job who had a different set of political um, perspectives. And what were we going to do with that, right? When you go from Dr. Off, Lieber, Steele to Alicia Glenn, it was a pretty noticeable shift, even in style and in perspective when I got there. And that perspective you characterize as that you're you're more about using the market more to help, you know, to, to do some of what the mayor has outlined as fighting for more equality and fighting against inequality rather than more sort of fully open market principles? Or how do you capture? Well, what, well I what think is it was more that I had come from a background of having really spent a time on all sides of these issues, right? I had been a legal services lawyer. I had worked in city government before. I had run an urban development platform that was focused on public-private partnerships. And I was really, truly, truly like a born and bred New Yorker who had grown up in a very sort of lefty Upper West Side household. And, you know, that was a major change. And I'm, and I'm a woman, and I think you do think about the world differently um, and how you structure deals. So I don't think it was – and clearly I was a person in the administration who had come from more of a – financial and pro-business background, but not to be conflated with somebody who had never actually been in the trenches working on all of these issues, which I had been working on my whole life. So again, not to say anything negative about my predecessors, but definitely a different perspective, without a doubt. And so it was very interesting also because, you, as you said, you know, before Mayor de Blasio had the biggest, grandest housing plan with 300,000 units, Mayor Bloomberg had an even bigger housing plan. And so all of this emanates from the fact that housing is so important to the city's competitiveness and to the mix of people we want here. And yet there was a lot of criticism about the plan in terms of how the units were, you know, to whom they were geared and how... um, The de Blasio plan. Yeah, well, the plan prior as well. But I think the, the... the criticism was a little more poignant because there was this explicit focus on equity. Do you think you got the mix right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is so much revisionist history about what's going on with the housing plan that it's that it's something that I really hope that people begin. And, and like anything, you know, in retrospect, everybody will say, wow, that was incredible, right? When you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to see. First of all, one of the things we felt really strongly about in terms of 
um, building on prior plans was to continue to focus on the fact that most housing plans are still targeted at very small percentages of the population because they're leveraging federal programs, which have a very narrow target. And so if you're serious about a city that is not a barbell city and you're serious about understanding that New York City government has as much obligation to make sure that a nurse and a teacher could live here as a person who lives literally at the federal definition of low income, then you have to begin to take on constituencies and challenges that people don't really like to talk about, right? But the truth of the matter is that we put all of our resources into figuring out how to get both at some housers would call the messy middle, right, real moderate mm -hmm. and middle-income housing, which is a serious issue for people in the city, as well as trying to figure out how to help our most vulnerable New Yorkers. Now, by the way, historically, as you all know, the federal government was responsible for senior housing. When they went out of the 202 business in the early 2000s, they basically left the country with no resources to serve who are the people really we should be the most focused on, right? I mean, seniors can't make any more money, right? We're not talking about job growth for seniors. And so we've had to address an increasingly, you know, empty bucket for seniors and an aging population, less and less resources for very, very low-income people, and just a continuation of these federal programs, which hit this very, very narrow group of people, like 60% of AMI. And so I thought it was incredibly important that we took our programmatic resources, our zoning, our land use, our assets, the four tools that we put into the machine to broaden who the plan serves. And, and I've debated this with people all the time. Of course, there's a natural inclination for people to say, we should put every single dime and every single bit of resources we have into serving our most vulnerable people. How can we have homeless people? All of this is true. But what kind of a city are we going to be if literally people who make $80,000, $90,000 a year as a family cannot live here and are forced to commute two hours out of town. That's certainly not the kind of city I want to live in. And so the plan continued and continues to serve more people at the lowest income range while also addressing the other ranges. And I'll take on anybody who wants to debate me about that. Right. And I think the, the other part that's just worth underlining and what I like to underscore with people is part of the reason housing prices are so expensive or rent is so expensive here is because we don't build enough. And when you look at the number of units that come online in New York versus any other large metro area, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's very low on a per capita basis, which leads to this housing crunch and, and rent increases. Right. So the reality of the math is if you want to subsidize a greater amount of low income housing, it costs more, which allows the city to then fund fewer units. That's why, that's why being yeah. pro-growth and pro-density is absolutely critical because the statistic that you know would be um, saying that New York is not as bad are places like San Francisco, right? True, true anti-growth cities where there's no as-of-right building. And those that, that kind of a policy has an, a tremendous ripple effect, which is why I continue to think that the mayor's position and our position was that you have to link density to more equitable growth, but you have to buy into the notion of growth. And all these people who hate everything and are anti-growth, they are really getting it wrong, and it's going to have a terrible, terrible impact on the city. Let me come back to that comment in a second. But but wouldn't that make an argument for upzoning more neighborhoods? I mean, was is that a frustration as you've left the job that you didn't upzone more neighborhoods, especially more middle and upper income neighborhoods? I mean, that's been one of the critiques is that the only neighborhoods that have been rezoned for the I mean, for the most part, are, are lower income neighborhoods you're going to get bigger fights in the middle and upper income neighborhoods. Well, we have plenty of fights. Well, I know. I'm, even <laughs> more fights. doesn't appear to be the problem. <clears throat> I mean, yes, I think we um, – I would have liked to have done more faster. Um, that's 
the way I tend to roll. But I also think that it was clear as we got into the complexities of actually doing neighborhood-wide rezonings, there is both the on-the-ground politics and community buy-in, which is incredibly important if you're going to get anywhere with this, but also the actual size of the neighborhoods and the rezonings that we were doing are very actually complicated from a planning perspective. And so they took longer, and the environmental work, I don't want to bore people with this, but you you can't just wave your magic wand. These things took a lot longer than I think I even understood going into the process. Um, I think one of the things also people need to recognize is that some of the neighborhoods we chose it wasn't because they are per se low-income neighborhoods. A lot of those neighborhoods, and particularly in central Brooklyn um, and the Bronx and other places that are on the study list or now have in fact been rezoned, had much larger populations in in the um, last century and have transit-rich. And so they've actually experienced depopulation. And so it wasn't so much where are we going to go so that we can just rezone neighborhoods that are Um, lower income in general, but we were really looking at places where there was existing infrastructure that we could build on, right? Because, and the Bronx is very well known for this. They have experienced depopulation since the 1940s and 50s fairly dramatically, and 70s, obviously. And so we really also wanted to look at transit-rich neighborhoods. Um, And a lot of the um, higher-density neighborhoods have already sort of hit that density to transportation ratio that you would see in an EIS that would make it even harder. And by the way, this goes to state politics, very challenging to upzone neighborhoods where they are already high density because of the state law issue on residential, um, the, the limit on the amount of residential FAR. And that is something that the city has been trying to deal with in Albany for the past five years. So we can't upzone downtown Brooklyn or parts of Manhattan because it's already hit the FAR residential cap. And so why would you upzone if you can't get the inclusionary housing, which was the whole point of the upzoning? If you could snap your fingers today and upzone a couple of neighborhoods that haven't been, what would they be? Wow, I haven't thought about that. And the thought of snapping my fingers well, and being able know, to rezone anything That's is right. now like you're out unbelievable. Of we can just wow, sort of dream and hope and. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there are still um, places that are on the list um, that are it's it's well known. It's not a secret. Um, you know, I think the Southern Boulevard area in the Bronx is is a really interesting place. Um, I still think that taking another look at parts of Flushing um, is really interesting. I mean, it's certainly a fairly high-density neighborhood, but interestingly, the, the zoning map really doesn't reflect where the path of growth would be, and obviously the need out there is extraordinary. And by the way, you're seeing a lot of market rate development up there, out there, and what a lost opportunity, right? I mean, part of what we came to correct or to try to do was what I call the the lost opportunity of, of Williamsburg-Greenpoint, Right. That was a place where they did a massive, massive rezoning and upzoning, and the affordable housing piece was essentially optional, right? Let's, I mean, that, that, that is really the truth. It was essentially optional. And had we been able to do that areas using our framework, the amount of absolutely for free permanent affordable housing the city could have generated in a neighborhood where you really could argue you needed it the most, because a lot of the, I think... Um, challenges that we face in the neighborhoods when we are going to rezone, I think are a result of what people feel like was a broken promise. 
around what happened on the Brooklyn waterfront. Um, and so I, I often talk about trying to repair the social contract between the planning department and communities, because a lot of communities felt in the prior administration that they were going to get affordable housing when they were upzoned or rezoned. And in fact, it was all basically optional. I mean, there were high incentives to do it, but you still didn't have the mix that was sort of the purported mix. And the one thing we were really serious about, and I'm really proud of the work we did, is we got it right. We are now building you know, a significant number of permanently affordable units across the city, both in private projects and in neighborhood-wide rezonings. And that's going to take a while, I think, to really bake into the zeitgeist and for communities to realize that we meant it and that we've permanently changed the blueprint for how you do, you know, increased residential growth across the city. So sticking to housing for a second, um, the other kind of area that was under your bailiwick and something that had sort of been a crisis that was simmering and came to a full boil under the administration was NYCHA. Mm -hmm. Um, So now there is, you know, problems are well publicized. There is this very good, you know, we back a plan to turn NYCHA around, NYCHA 2.0. But there's also this federal monitor. I mean, what is the prospect, given that this, this monitorship is not coming with federal funds for getting the, you know, working with the monitor constructively to get him to make, you know, to help aid in, in progress here to turn around NYCHA? Well, I think, I, I think, you know, uh, thank you for agreeing that the 2.0 plan is, is, is a good one. And it's really a, f- a piece of work I'm incredibly proud of because so much focus was rightfully on the challenges that exist in the stock. And, and there's a, a lot of work that has to get done. But um, I've always been a big proponent of, um, and it, again, like many things, it takes a while for this to get fully baked and to deal with understandably people's concern around what it means to transform NYCHA. And I don't think we can belittle um, people's legitimate fear of what it means to to transform the housing authority. Um, I don't and worry. And the main thing you're referring to there, though, is the infill. Not no. infill. Oh. Infill, people didn't like because people generally are anti-development. And that we always understand. And, and that's a process of trying to explain why infill development would, in fact, benefit and, the individuals on those campuses. And and I and I admitted about a year or so ago that our, our plan to deal with that, which was this 50-50 approach, was, in fact, in retrospect, a mistake. That what we should have done was, and, and this is what is in 2.0, um, built mandatory inclusionary compliant housing to generate more money, have a higher um, ratio of market rate on the campuses, but have all of the revenue that was generated from those buildings going into fixing the campus. The original theory, which also had some merit, I think, which was it would be inequitable to not have some of the money go back up to the authority so that the developments that were in non-high income areas could also get money for repairs. And you could argue that both ways. But in terms of the political reality on the ground, I think that the 2.0 plan is much smarter. So an infill, which also is not technically the word, but when we develop <laughs> mixed income housing on underutilized property um, in NYCHA, the, the nexus between the development of new housing and fixing folks who live in that campus is much tighter, and we we're going to see, I think, a lot more um, re- receptivity buy-in. and mm-hmm. buy into it. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger issue, and the thing I, I really want to stress is federal policy, you know, really for the past 15 years has been to 
um, convert as much public housing as possible from public housing subsidy to Section 8 housing and to begin to use third-party managers. Um, and that's known as RAD and a million other acronyms. But the bottom line is really since day one of the Obama administration and even before that, that has been federal policy. And that took much longer to take seed in New York City than it did in other jurisdictions for complicated reasons. But now we have begun. And you know, if we can actually convert 60,000, 70,000 units um, to high-quality you know, management and get those units off of NYCHA's books so that they can consolidate and more efficiently manage their portfolio and do that with the monitor, I think we're at an inflection point that could have some positive results. I think we're at that moment. And so I don't think there's a conflict between what the monitor needs to do in terms of maintaining the repair schedule and all the issues that are in NYCHA and going full steam ahead with continuing to work to convert more units to Section 8. Those two things can and should run on parallel tracks. I know we want to move on to economic development stuff and, and some other topics. Um, just on NYCHA, one more. Did you feel, because NYCHA is an authority, you know, did you feel coming in that that was a key piece of your portfolio? Was that the understanding coming in? You know, how did that sort of work? I'm always curious about where NYCHA sort of fits in City Hall's um, buckets and and your deputy mayor position. No, I mean, it's very different. I mean, prior administrations, um, the NYCHA um, sort of oversight wasn't even part of the economic development um, portfolio at all, and it was very clear. And and I wanted it. I mean, I think that if you're a houser and you care about these issues, you shouldn't shy away from the issues around the housing authority. Um, So first of all, it was was never even a question that I would have NYCHA. Um, If you're a serious person who thinks they care about housing and wants to think about housing, it is an enormous part of the housing ecosystem in New York. That said, it is a state-formed, <laughs> federally financed authority. And so the relationship between City Hall and the Housing Authority obviously is different than the regular you know, agencies that reported to me. But it would be totally hypocritical and ridiculous for me to say, oh, that was somebody else's problem. It was 100% under me. Um, I worked very closely with the chair of the Housing Authority and the staff there. And we did make a lot of progress. It is an enormously complex issue. And as I said, this is something it took 80 years to get to where we were. If it takes four years or so to start figuring out how to have a housing authority in the 21st century, given federal policy, that doesn't feel good if you're the person who's living in the housing authority and your conditions are terrible. And I would never want to suggest that that isn't a real issue. But systemically, this is a very complicated issue, and I think the mayor and I and everybody, it is something we have to own in many ways. Not literally, (laughs) because it is a federal authority, but we have to own it in terms of what we see the future of New York City's housing to be and the incredible resource that the housing authority can and should continue to be for low-income New Yorkers. So let's talk economic development. Um, Where do you see the city now in terms of its economy, its competitiveness, you know, we'll probably ask an Amazon question in a minute, as I'm sure you're expecting. But but more broadly than that, what impact do you think you had there? Was it humming in such a good direction that you mostly were sort of tinkering on the edges? Or how do you feel like you, you did in terms of the broader city economy? Well, I mean, I think I think city's in incredible shape right now when you look at, again, forget even the raw data. I mean, just even anecdotally, it's extraordinary when you – we look at statistics a lot about the unemployment rate and – I mean – we're basically almost at functional zero for employment. I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary, and for many, many years now. So the issue is really not about 
jobs and how many jobs there are, I think it's what is the quality of those jobs and how are we beginning to deal with some of the wages and the quality of life issues for workers in New York and making sure that we can sustain this growth, right, and continue to diversify the economy so that the jobs that we are creating are higher paying jobs with opportunities to really have, you know, a true middle class or ultimately, you know, upper middle class income. Um, and to do that in a way that is, you know, a more of a five borough approach, not just because people live in the five boroughs, but because you also want to sort of control some of the densification issues within the core, especially with our transportation problems. So I'm incredibly proud of the of the things that we did with respect to, again, you can go on two tracks, right? It was very important that we rezone East Midtown because you cannot lose um, or begin to lose, you know, really important economic centers that are adjacent to on top of some of the greatest transit-rich neighborhoods, and by the way, correct what was becoming clearly an imbalance between Hudson Yards and the World Trade Center sites, which were highly, highly subsidized. And so legitimately, the landowners in East Midtown were facing unbelievable competition. And so to sort of level the playing field in terms of those three CBDs, it was very important for us to continue to support East Midtown. So I think the rezoning in East Midtown is one of the most amazing things we did, and people won't realize it for many years. But to link densification with actual public realm improvements and transportation, something that the Bloomberg administration couldn't figure out how to do and pulled the rezoning, as you know, at the last minute, and dealing with the landmarks and, you know, all the religious institutions and all the crazy players in New York City, I think will go down as a really signature achievement. So you can, you can focus on sort of Manhattan core, you know, finance jobs, you know, professional jobs, and then simultaneously be doing all these amazing things in the outer boroughs. So we put in hundreds of millions of dollars to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, to BAT, to Bush, in very significant ways to allow modern manufacturing and other kinds of innovation companies and even traditional manufacturing to really have places and spaces to be able to grow in New York and not be worried that they were going to get rezoned to be condos. That's a huge shift in policy, A, investing lots of capital in those facilities, and B, making it very clear that those are no-fly zones. It's not like mm -hmm. we're going to wake up one day and take all these beautiful buildings in the Navy Yard or bad and become luxury condos. We made long-term commitments, which is a real signal, I think, to the economy going forward, that if you are a maker or an innovator or somebody, an artist, we are actually going to have places and spaces for you to grow your business. And again, this will take time to be realized. Um, and then the way, we, the way we were looking at the rezoning on um, the Long Island City waterfront also Originally, it was going to be basically your plain vanilla residential rezoning, and we were very clear that we wanted to make that a true, true mixed-use district, completely new zoning text, new building typologies to represent sort of why we want what I call chunky and funky buildings that allow really interesting spaces to exist on the ground floors, and then you can do mixed-income residential on top. These are big shifts in policy. Hundreds of millions of dollars into the Hunts Point food market, not just because it's where 80% of our food comes through the city, but because there are incredible job growth opportunities in food manufacturing and upstate-downstate food partnerships. You know, really high-quality jobs, but you have to invest in those things in your assets and make hard choices. So I feel incredibly confident about the future of the city, both in terms of middle-class jobs and sort of higher-end jobs, as long as we get our infrastructure and our transportation piece right. Mm. Let's be honest. If we don't get with the program, we are not going to be able to maintain our global competitiveness. And that's, I think, the big issue, right? You're always making deals, doing deals. You know, 
Was that a source of frustration? How many times in those conversations you heard about the subway issues? Was that something that was a major problem in your conversations or had it not? In terms of individual deals yeah, on individual transactions? Deals or, yeah, or just you know conversations with company leaders or you know about competitiveness of the city. Was that something that was really coming up a lot or was that more of a conversation happening internally in New York a little bit more than it was among... I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because I think when we were looking at deals outside of um, Manhattan, it was always front and center, right? Um, either because there was so much strain on whatever existing transportation there was um, in the, you know, farther out you go, or how do you actually get to Bat or Bush, right, or, right? How do you, and that's why the ferry was so exciting, and that's why we're studying the BQX and really trying to figure out other um, sort of multimodal transportation opportunities that would not force us to rely on the MTA. I would say the transportation issues were more front and center when you were talking about development in the outer boroughs, but the irony is the challenges are even more so in Manhattan, but I, I they were not as front and center. That's very interesting. Mm. And I think maybe because the big business leaders, either because a lot of them don't take the subway mm. <laughs> um, or because even when it's not great, it's so good. And I think <laughs> here in the- It still runs 24 hours a day. It still runs 24 hours right. a day. And by mm. the way, even when it's crowded, it basically works. And so That's I right. think if you're Chase or Google- or Goldman Sachs, or whatever it was, or Bank of New York, or whoever these guys we were doing big deals with, their employees basically get on the train and do get to work. And I think if you don't live in New York City, you don't realize how good a system it really is, despite how much work we need to do to improve the system. Right, and despite how frustrated people may right. very well But be the number seven train, it's real, and there's only one train. And so when you talk about development in Queens, that became much more front and center. How are we going to aggress? If we were serious about putting hundreds of thousands of new jobs in Sunnyside Yard or Willits or Long Island City, how were we going to have a commensurate increase, particularly in subway service? And that was very front and center, but not if you were doing a deal with Chase in New York City. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about Amazon for a second. I, you know, a lot of people that I talk to in the business community are petrified. They are very worried about the signal that this sends to other businesses who may be looking to ramp up, relocate, et cetera. What do you say to those concerns? Ridiculous. I mean, I really think that the notion that the Amazon decision not to go forward with the deal is somehow a referendum on the future of New York City is something that's being sort of cooked up by people who, for some reason, want to make it seem like New York City is not the place to be or or want to or trying to spur uh, perhaps the government to offer bigger incentives, ironically, right? Um, I actually, I think it's just statistically it is incorrect. I mean, while we were in the middle of finalizing the Amazon transaction, and then even when it was unwinding, you have major companies doubling down here, right? The Google announcement, which we've been working on, you know, for two years, we've been meeting with them um, quietly. Um, you know, meeting, I mean, Chase had been announced already. Um, Facebook taking, I think, another 300,000 square feet. Square coming. I mean, it's just statistically incorrect to say that companies are not making the decisions to come to New York and or to stay in New York. It's just wrong. And I suspect that Amazon is going to take a lot more space in Hudson Yards. Um, so I think that there's – I'm not sure why people are saying that, and I don't like that because I'm an eternal optimist about New York City because the fundamental reasons why Amazon wanted to be here are still here, Right. We still have the most extraordinarily diverse, educated, of, you know, talent pool, and we have the coolest city. 
But the threats of the sort of anti-corporate energy seem to have grown. Well, but you know what I think is ironic about that? And this is what this is what I'm worried about, is that because of things like that, companies will be less likely to go to non-traditional locations. Mm. And that is one of the ironies. I, I have said this many times, and I'll say it again. Had Amazon decided to go to Hudson Yards or World Trade Center, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So what I worry about, and I would say to all the advocates and the folks who have been against Amazon, is if you create an atmosphere where companies who do want to participate in a smarter, more collaborative engagement process around workforce development and public benefits and the realm, the, the, you can't underestimate what was going to happen there to the public realm and a brand new waterfront park. If you send a message that folks are not welcome in those areas, all you're going to do is send them all back to Manhattan. Is that really what you wanted? So I always say to folks who are against all this, so what's your idea? What would you like to see? What kind of jobs and what kinds of companies do you want to see in the outer boroughs instead of just being, we don't want anything? There, I mean, there were some pretty serious questions that even the mayor has echoed about Amazon's sort of corporate citizenship. You're referring to some of the community benefits that would have definitely come with it, but there's also, you know, this unionization element and some of these other things. You felt those weren't major concerns or that we well, those would have been dealt with down no, the road? Well, or? I think, I mean, I think, I certainly do not think that Amazon is blameless in all this. That's not what I'm suggesting. I think Amazon underestimated um, what, what, a, what it would take and what it should take, quite frankly, to establish a major presence in New York City and have a relationship with community and with um, particularly the education institutions and all the other things that we were really excited about. I think they misunderstood how much that needed to be front and center as they began to engage. And I think that at the end of the day, they may not be as sophisticated as they should be. And it's too bad because I think ultimately having up to 40,000 jobs of high paying, you know, um, both engineering jobs, operations jobs, et cetera, it would have been a, a very good thing for New York City. It's not fatal, as I, as I just said. Um, on the unionization issue, I mean, I think those are complex issues. But whether Amazon's headquarters is in New York City or in Nashville or in Pittsburgh, they're going to make their own decisions about whether or not they're going to unionize their workforce in the warehouse. So I'm not sure how it's a victory for people who want to see that workforce get unionized having them, quote, being chased out of New York. I don't think that actually helps. In fact, ironically, I agree with the mayor on this. Had they made the decision to be more of a player in New York City, there would have been more of an opportunity to probably educate them around why those issues are important for long-term economic growth. If they, you know, I, I just don't see what the That's correlation between those two things. Certainly what the mayor has indicated, and there's, there's an argument to that. There's folks who said, well, now, you know, then now they're going to just create more jobs in places that are much less. Let them go to a right-to-work state, right? Let them yeah. move to the south. How did that? That's what I'm saying. That's why I don't understand. You know what that line of reasoning. I want to push on something you yeah. said, though. Why should companies have to sort of prove themselves to come to New York? Why? You know, is and is that is that the wrong signal as well? Um, because you know we, we've talked about talent. We've talked about the enormous amount of talent here, and that is clearly one of our strongest competitive advantages, right? But we do have extremely high housing costs, right? And to be quite frank, other cities are now developing in ways that makes them more fun and interesting. They'll never be New York. But, you know, they're sort of better competitors, let's say, than they were a while back. You know, isn't that sort of a dangerous dynamic where a company can say, okay, you know, yes, we'd have the strongest talent pool in New York, but it may not be worth these other headaches when we can sort of go somewhere else and quietly set up shop and, quite frankly, be very welcome. 
Yeah, I, I don't think you have to prove yourself, but I think in any business, you have to be smart, right? I mean, there's a big difference between proving yourself and being just a smart company, right? And, and we have so many examples of companies that are smart about how they try to interact, not just with the communities they're in, because a lot of companies are in central business districts and the community doesn't really exist per se, but they understand that they operate within a um, an environment or a political ecosystem where there are legitimate concerns and there are people who you want to have be on your side. I don't think that's proving yourself, right? Um, and New York City is a complex web, for better or worse, of political people, community people, civic elites, amazing institutions. It's part of why we actually are who we are. And so a company's failure to aggressively try to understand that ecosystem and think about where they sit and how they would play in that and be proactive about having people on their team who understand that and can be strategic, that to me is not making a company prove itself. It's part of any smart C-suite strategy anywhere, right? I mean, that's what these guys do. And I think that they really miss the boat on that. So we are talking with Alicia Glenn, the recently departed deputy mayor for housing and economic development under Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, for a little over five years. Uh, we've got about five more minutes maybe with you if you can if you can take the heat. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me get your quick reaction on a couple things. Um, what do you think of Hudson Yards? <laughs> oh man! Um, you know, it's not—it's not my personal favorite place. Um, I don't—you know—it's not a neighborhood as they are characterizing it. Um, I think it is an extraordinarily important piece of the broader New York City economic puzzle. I think we have to have and continue to grow, um, and have particularly those kinds of office buildings. Um, I think are incredibly important. Architecturally and design-wise, I don't want to go into that. It's not, okay. again, my favorite. Let's just say it seems very male to me. Um, I would have maybe had a little bit of a different um, sense of aesthetic. What the, uh, uh-huh. Aesthetic. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important that, that, that the, the bet that was made, the investments that were made in Hudson Yards have, in fact, more or less proven to be true and will be an, a very, very big piece of the revenue stream going forward. Will the BQX happen? I think the BQX will happen. I don't think it's going to happen on the original time frame. But okay. nobody's going to stop the growth of the Brooklyn-Queens waterfront, and I don't think the MTA has any plans to put a new subway along that line. What would you love to see happen on Rikers Island? Wow, that's a good one. Um, you know, I we studied a lot. I think a lot of people think, oh, it can be a panacea for all of our problems and we could build, like, a whole new Michelama community out there. It doesn't make economic sense when I took a look at it. Um, it's in the flight path. Um, it's very hard to get to. I think that Rikers Island could be and should be a place where there are a lot of really um, important city services that can be relocated there um, so that we can free up some of the other spaces that are could be more highly utilized, either for housing, for schools, for job creation. So I think a way like to – sanitation yeah, stuff Yeah, yeah, and transfer. I mean, I think uh-huh. re-envisioning the island because it already has that kind of hard infrastructure mm-hmm. on it. Um, I think that that would be a really interesting idea is to figure out how to turn that into like, you know, a true infrastructure island to support city services. I also think there's an interesting deal to be made possibly with the port um, to sell it to them and do the next runway and mm-hmm. do a, a land swap. I got a lot of ideas about <laughs> land I'd like to swap with the port because there are great sites 
Um, and I, I actually think for a global competitiveness, having LaGuardia have another runway is not a bad idea either. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it is a place that will somehow become the next Roosevelt Island or Mitchell Lama Island. It just doesn't make sense in terms of the cost of location um, and the flight path. What about sunny side yards? Love it. It's, good. it's the future. I mean, again, we have to keep moving forward. I mean, this is a city, if you're pro-growth, Sunnyside Yard is going to be the next great community. And I think it will be, in many respects, um, a different and, I would argue, more scaled and a more inclusive um, version of Hudson Yards. And I only use Hudson Yards because it's literally a, it's a, it's a rail yard. And mm-hmm. so we're able to avail ourselves of the benefit of all, of all the engineering that we've learned. But to really build something there with an open space ratio, an FAR that is denser but lower and really does reflect the best of the planning principles that the de Blasio administration embraces. True mixed use, um, but not scared of density. I mean, what an opportunity to build in the middle of the center of the world. I mean, that is the center of New York City. If you actually put a dot in the middle of New York City, people don't even realize that. And to me, that's going to be one of the great, great things to look forward to in the next couple of decades is what happens out there. You said, I think, both these things in a in a Crane's interview, um, so I just want to give them credit for, for um, that, but that you're concerned about Governor's Island, about the future there without your leadership? Was that or, – or, or the gondola? What, what was it? <laughs> no, I'm going to stay very involved in Governor's okay. Island. There'll be an announcement about that um, you know, forthcoming. But, no, I'm excited because one of the things I think is really going to be a game changer for Governor's Island is um, gondola technology has changed a lot since the last time people took a look at this. And so we have advanced the study for gondola, which is a much more cost-effective way to get out there than the idea is to extend the number one train. Um, we're by no means at the place where we're green lighting. We, the administration, mm-hmm. um, is green lighting a gondola. But I think it's exciting. And again, I, I think we should all be at every opportunity looking at different ways to get people around the city. That's something that if you're not doing that and you're in city government, then you know what are you doing? Um, notwithstanding the fact that you know hopefully the MTA will get their act together. We still have things that we can do that we can control, and we can make decisions about where we want to have accretive transportation options. And so why shouldn't we look at a gondola? I mean, there's lots of cool things we should be looking at. I'm not a gondola expert, so <laughs> I'll leave that there. Um, the You mentioned not having gotten a soccer stadium done. Is that like the big thing you didn't get done? Are there other sort of moonshot's the wrong term, obviously, because that's not like on the scale of a moonshot. But like <laughs> are there other big things that you – either wish you could have gotten done or that you would love to just sort of see for the city's future, you know, the Rikers, the question of what's going to happen to Rikers is like one of these things. Are there other sort of big things? Yeah. I mean, I think soccer is important. We're a global city. How can we not have a real, I mean, I don't like seeing a soccer team playing in Yankee Stadium. I mean, that if you're a soccer person, the pitch has to be sacred, as you know. <laughs> um, and we are the great global city. And I think that we will see a soccer stadium. And again, an unsubsidized one, but one that really does sort of fit into the neighborhood. And I think that's a great thing. And, and that hopefully will happen. I mean, I think there are other things. I I do think that um, there was a huge lost opportunity with the rezoning around Litch. Um, That, to me, was one of the great lost opportunities where, you know, the council person was not profiles and courage. And I'll take them on any day on that. Um, Because that's exactly why we did things like mandatory inclusionary in high-income neighborhoods, and we couldn't get the politics to be able to put affordable housing there. By contrast, I fought tooth and nail, everybody knows, to get affordable housing in Brooklyn Bridge Park. And so you these are fights. Every single inch you have to fight and you have to take, and it takes political leadership and courage. And so there are several deals where I really wish that you know the council had showed a little bit more guts 
around these issues. And I really hope that going forward, people begin to understand that the trade-off of some increase in density in order to assure that we are proportionally building permanent affordable housing in New York City is the right deal for New Yorkers. And so I wish I could have done more of that. I wish we hadn't lost Litch. And I also think that as we rezone neighborhoods or create land in places like Sunnyside Yard, or when we look at potentially a, a cool land swap or a couple of ideas with the port, that people understand why we're doing it. It's, it's to make sure we are building a more equitable New York for the future and not to be the we hate everythingists, right? And there's just so much of that. And that to me is like the most un-New York thing you can be is anti-everythingist and anti-growth because that's why we're all here, right? And so to me, um, pro-growth, smart, inclusive economic development, whatever you want to call it, focusing on building social infrastructure while you're building hard infrastructure, that's, that's, that's the call of the decade. You are uh, still going to be involved in a women.nyc. Do you want to – Take a yeah, quick on thing. One of the things I loved, like. you know, I mean, again, I started the conversation by saying I came to it as a woman. I'm still a woman. I haven't, you know, I haven't transitioned. Um, I'm still a woman, and we launched what I think is a really interesting, the first platform of its kind, really globally, which is to put a whole series of programs and services and policy under one, um, one platform, women.nyc. We have a women's venture fund. We have a crowdsourcing platform for young women entrepreneurs. We have a loan fund. We're doing really interesting policy work. We launched this mother coders, you know, women who want to go back into the workforce and learn how to code without hanging out with, you know, tech bros on skateboards. You know, you can bring your kids to work. These are amazingly important things because I think New York City really has the opportunity to be the place for women to succeed. And, and, and to say that as such, like brand ourselves as the place for women to succeed and look at everything we do through a gendered lens. I mean, Sweden is doing it, right? They have, a, they have to score every, um, every law they pass to see whether or not it positively or negatively impacts women. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's, yeah. So I think it's really – I think we have an amazing opportunity to make New York City the place for women to succeed. And we know statistically that when women succeed, everybody succeeds. You drive better shareholder value. You drive better output. You drive better community engagement. So for me, if I can continue and I will continue to be the chair of Women.NYC and push that agenda – that is really important, and we're going to roll that out and hopefully be, you know, um, a model for the nation. Would you ever run for office? I'm going to sound like everybody else who says they, that they wouldn't roll it out. You know, I, I right now I'm still recovering and trying to go to yoga a few times a week, um, which is already amazing for me. Um, you know, I think I wouldn't rule it out because I think the fact that New York City doesn't have right now – a lot of women candidates are still there are an unbelievable number of young women out there who blow my mind every single day. Um, but you know, there's still a dearth of women who have executive experience, have run complex organizations, um, you know, have, have had multiple experiences in different, um, both in politics and in the private sector and in the nonprofit sector. You know, it's something I would obviously think about at the right time. And between then, uh, potentially then and now, do you know what, what you're looking at? Do you know? Right now, I'm, I'm just really focusing on, again, getting some rest um, mm. and thinking about ways in which I can continue to contribute to the conversation and hopefully work on these women in NYC things and other deals and stuff that I really care about. All right. We will leave it there with Alicia Glenn. As uh, we didn't get to a variety of things, of course, you can never get to everything. So maybe we'll, we'll get your thoughts again sometime. Um, but we thank you for joining us. Um, it's good to look back on your five years as deputy mayor, and uh, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.
Bye.